Hello, and welcome to another episode of Read and React. I'm Ben Ladner, and joining me on the other line is John Sauber. How you doing, man? I am good. We are really getting close to the end of this thing. Thankfully, honestly, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of ready for the playoffs to start. I, I am somewhat. I'm, I'm ready for like the last five game stretch of the season, I guess, you know, because I think it's yeah. going to get interesting because a lot of the issues that we're going to run into, too, is that like, how do you talk about potential playoff matchups when four could fall to ten when when six right. could fall out of the playoffs? Like there's 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 too much going on right now and it makes it tougher to discuss things moving forward uh that being said i think there there are some teams that we can discuss things moving forward that will be uh still be pertinent for the next couple of weeks yeah i was going through actually and just sort of outlining some future episodes just putting together templates basically of mvp ballot all nba stuff like that and just kind of thinking through it um you know formatting a, a a document to do playoff previews in and i was thinking okay is there any way i can get out ahead of this you know, can I go ahead and pencil in a couple playoff matchups and start researching it? There's nope. none. There is not none. a single playoff matchup that's set in stone right now. There, It's becoming more and more likely, obviously, as the season goes on. I think we know pretty definitively who the top two seeds in each conference are going to be in some order. You know, we're starting to get kind of some stratification in each conference. But as far as specific matchups or, or even like who's going to be on first team all NBA, I have no idea. You know, even the MVP race is it seems locked up at this point, but that could easily change in the next two weeks, however, however long is left in the season. Like nothing, there's nothing we can go ahead and say like, okay, this is how it's going to end up, but I'm kind of ready to do that, which is why I feel like the season just needs to hurry up and, and get to the playoffs. Yeah, I get that. I do think Jokic is the MVP barring him getting hurt and Embiid. Like, well, I mean, Embiid really just has to keep playing how he's playing, but like outside of Jokic getting hurt, like there's no way he's going to lose that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there, I think you're right with the top two seeds in each, each conference. Uh, I do think there's, and this is going to sound odd to say, it's going to make me sound like a homer, but whatever. Uh, I do think the Sixers are, are pretty not set in stone as the one seed, even though they are behind the Nets right now. They, if you look at their schedule, they're playing like every team that's trying to lose the rest of yeah. the way. Easiest like, schedule in the league. Yeah, nine and two and 10 and one's not off the table while the nets have back to back against the bucks on the road. Like they've got a bunch of tough games. The Sixers have the tiebreaker. Like it just seems like that's probably an inevitability, especially because the Sixers are finally getting healthy. Uh, they have their full rotation finally available for the first time in a while. Uh, and, and that was the case against the thunder. So we'll see how it turns out, but I think that one is probably going to happen. We're probably going to see Utah win the West outside of that though. I, I, I have no idea. This is totally anecdotal, but I feel like whenever I go through a team's remaining schedule, it's either like Bucks, Clippers, yeah, yeah Nuggets, yeah. Jazz, or it's like Rockets, Timberwolves, <laughs> Raptors. You know, I guess I should games against just the Magic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just either all the best teams in the West or the worst teams in the league, which obviously isn't the case. But it seems like for the teams that I've looked at, it's just either all one way or all the other you're walking to the end or are you like running uphill there's no in between right. uh but yeah no I, th I think that's generally the, the feeling i get when i look at them too so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out those teams with those weak schedules obviously have an advantage unless you're the celtics and can't beat the thunder uh which which is concerning i do enjoy we're not going to talk much about the celtics past this but like i do enjoy that everyone was sort of gassing them up it was like oh they figured it out like this is finally it and what have they lost three in a row now including a game to the thunder like come on like what are we what are we falling for 
I was doing some research for some of the teams we're going to talk about today, and I was looking at how they've done in the month of April because we're recording this on the 28th. And I was so I was scrolling through how each team, you know, the, the league data for the month of April. The Thunder have a negative 18.9 net rating in the month of April. Listen, if if Adam Silver doesn't step in soon, like and install Colangelo to take over for Sam Presti, I don't know what we're gonna do. We There's need to no, banish Presti from the NBA. Yeah, he 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 must never be allowed to to manage a team again. It is uh there is there's no honor in losing the way he is losing. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a confusing time. I mean, yeah, I, 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 the Al Horford thing. I just don't understand. Like, didn't didn't the Spurs get fined for resting guys the other night? And the Thunder are just over here, like, like admitting that Al Horford is a healthy scratch, <laughs> which I yeah, don't have a like problem with. I don't have an issue with that. Yeah, no, no. no to but be it's clear, just everything I said is facetious. Of course, like, yeah, but it's just the double standard is so surprising. They boosted Sam Hankey and like ousted him. Uh, installed Jerry Colangelo, who just happened to hire, just happened to hire his son. What a coincidence <laughs> as general manager. And then you see it like, I don't know, it it, it is, uh, I, I compare it to the uh, the situation with the COVID games earlier this year. Ironically enough, also the Sixers on the rough end of that one too, like where it's like, no, you're playing with seven, like you have to play. And then immediately after that, it's like, yeah, we made a mistake. And then they had to, you know, uh, start canceling games left and right. And with, with the tanking stuff, it was, you know, Hinky at least didn't bench Al Horford, like played the best players they have. They just weren't good uh, and were, were tanking in the sense that the front office was, but the team and the players were trying. This is clearly like the coaching staff also making the decision that yeah. like we're not going to be good if Al Horford is not playing. In the player, Al Horford deciding that it's okay and that they're not going to be good. Uh, you know, it is a – the double standard is a little ridiculous, and I think it makes the, uh, the situation with the Colangelo's and the Sixers even more laughable than it already was. I think the Sixers just need to stop breaking these barriers. They're always the first they, team to do or this. Or Fultz's know? shooting motion. Stop doing that, too. <laughs> whether it's tanking or whether it's having guys out with COVID, which obviously wasn't a decision they made. But they're or always kind trying, of like, – Or trying to kill Zaire Smith. Yeah, like of just... course. <laughs> they're, but they're always like the first team to do something. They're like the guinea pig in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so the league makes a decision, and then they realize that they made the wrong decision, but they can't retroactively – I guess they could reinstate Hinky, but – what's done is done. And so the best they can do now is make better decisions in the future, but it just looks unfair because the Sixers were, the decisions were made to the Sixers before anyone knew how to make those decisions. You know, the best they can do is give the Sixers more cap space this off season as a reward, a conditional draft pick. Yes. You know, what would be funny is if they made the thunder, give a pick to the Sixers for being, for <laughs> well, being the, like well, the, the barrier you know breaker of maybe, the tanking. Thing. <laughs> maybe that's what Mike Muscala was doing last year when he made that shot to give the, the Sixers, the Tyrese Maxey pick. Well, I don't know how to transition to the Blazers. So let's just talk about gonna, the Blazers because well, I, and there's a connection here uh, because there's a star that might be available. I think in the off season. Uh, yeah. I mean, you think so? Well, let, which one? not the best one, which is why okay. it's more palatable. Yeah. Uh, we'll get to that. But the, I think the the general idea here with the Blazers is that things are getting really bad really quickly. Um, and it, it seems like, and we say this all the time. We say it every year. Oh, the Blazers are finally at the end of the road with this Dame CJ duo, but I think they laid the groundwork to move on from CJ McCollum when they traded for Norm Powell. Like they, you know what I mean? Like they kind of got that secondary score that would allow them to move him. Um, 
And I do think if things go poorly enough, they might not make the playoffs. Like they could easily get bounced out of the play-in um, and they could, they could easily lose in the first round. They probably will lose in the first round in a best case scenario. Um, and when that happens, I think they might be the end of the road with that duo. I don't think they would ever move Dame. Like they're, they're not moving Damian Lillard unless Damian Lillard asked to be traded ever. Like, you know what I mean? They just can't be the ones that initiate that. They would have to decide it, decide that it's best mutually. Um, but I, I do think McCollum's the guy, you know, that, that gets moved. And I do think this is the off season to do it. And teams would be lining up for him because that dude is really good. Uh, and he has a skill set that a lot of teams really need. Uh, it's just not working out there and they, they need defense. They also need to get rid of Carmelo Anthony, but you know, they're in a, they're in a bad spot right now, worse than they've been in, in maybe a decade. Yeah. The thing with CJ is I also think other teams could probably mask his deficiencies better than the Blazers could because he's been playing his entire career with another small guard. So it just makes it difficult defensively. And and both guys kind of seem like more of a liability than they would be in other situations. So if you put him on, let's say a Sixers for your sake, you have a Ben Simmons, you have Danny Green, you have George Hill, you have Joel Embiid, you have all of these defenders. That's probably a best case scenario because they're just stocked with these great defenders. But even like a middle of the road defense, like a Spurs, if you put him on the San Antonio Spurs, they have enough defensive personnel around him, probably assuming DeMar DeRozan isn't on the team at that point, to kind of mask what he does. The problem with the Blazers is they just don't have enough good defenders and especially with the Powell deal, you know, now you're bringing in an undersized three to play next to those small guards. And so you just get even smaller and, and even weaker on defense. This kind of, if they lose CJ, it'll make the Gary Trent trade, or I guess also the Powell trade. See, we might have to reevaluate it because Gary Trent's going to be a restricted free agent and Norm Powell is going to be an unrestricted free agent. And so they're going to have to probably pay more for Norm Powell this offseason than they would have to keep Gary Trent. So I don't know. They, they might end up spending more money than they otherwise would have had to for what would be, in my eyes, kind of a marginal upgrade and not worth the, the difference they'd have to pay. But it's interesting because the Blazers are 4-10 in, in the month of April with a plus 1.2 net rating. So they've actually been a positive by point differential, but they have this negative record. And that's interesting because all season they've had a negative point differential and yet, and they've outperformed it by so much to be able to keep themselves above water. And in fact, they have an identical net rating plus 0.3 as the Toronto Raptors and almost an inverse record, 26 and 35 for the Raptors, 33 and 28 for the Blazers. So their April has been basically the opposite of the rest of their season. And a big reason for that is because Damian Lillard has not been nearly as good as he's been the rest of the season. April has been his worst month of the year by far. He's averaging under 23 points a game on under 52% true shooting in those 14 games and weirdly shooting 82% from the foul line. I don't know if that's a fatigue thing, if he's wearing down. Jason Quick had a good article in The Athletic about how Lillard's body is just kind of breaking down, which isn't surprising given how much he had to carry this team earlier in the season. And you would have thought that he would be able to take a step back with CJ and Nurkic back and they could take up more of that load. But that just hasn't been the case. They've they've needed Lillard to do basically as much as he's done for the rest of the season when he looked like an MVP, and he just hasn't been able to sustain that workload. Yeah, I do want to say, though, that, that April, uh, you know, positive plus minus is uh, skewed a little bit 
by a 48-point win over the Thunder. Yes, uh, it's a small sample win size. over the Pistons and a 21-point win over the Pacers. They have lost a lot of close games. They lost by one to the Celtics, lost by one to Denver, lost by two to Memphis, uh, lost by one to the Clippers. So they are losing close games, but they also like blew some teams out to sort of get to that point. Um, yeah, I I just don't know what the next step looks like if Dame is starting to wear down, like if maybe this is start sort of the end of the peak or the the, the back end of the peak for him. Um, I don't know what the ideal uh, partner next to him looks like, because I think it might be CJ McCollum because you need someone to sort of take that weight off his shoulders. The problem is he, the, the defense is so bad that it's, it's damning. Uh, I just don't know what they would want to acquire that could sort of change that, you know, like they can't, you, you mentioned the Sixers, CJ McCollum's not getting traded for Ben Simmons unless they're adding more, you know, like that's not enough for Ben Simmons. Um do they want a Tobias Harris? Like, is that the answer? Maybe. Like, that's it's sort of the juiced up version of like the good version of Carmelo Anthony is basically Tobias Harris. You know, uh, the efficient version offensively, the good version defensively. If you look at the Spurs, there's like you could just get those young wings, but then are you just transitioning to a new new era? You know, uh, unless like Dejounte Murray's on the table, and if I'm the Spurs, I would want to pair McCollum with him, so that doesn't really work. And so, what what are you really looking at? You know, like. I don't know what the the right answer is. I don't know that there is one, and that's why, like, I think the the actual right answer might be moving on from Dame. It'll never happen, and I don't think it should happen because of what he's done for the franchise. But I think that might be the best in a vacuum move that they can make this offseason is to move to that next era altogether instead of trying new iterations around him. And that's not to say that they can't still be a good team because I, I still think they have a decent amount of upside but it's kind of been the story the entire McCollum Lillard tenure is like you can make a conference finals once, you know, make, make that run that you come out of nowhere and surprise people, but are you going to win a championship? Almost certainly not. And so like you kind of have to weigh the value of being good and having a team that the fans support and that they feel close to, and that, you know, is, is meaningful to the city and to the organization. You have to weigh the value of that with the value of, championship equity and what actually happens on the court for the next three, four, five years. And so the Blazers have constantly opted for, we're going to stick with what we have. This, this group has both on court and I guess, sentimental value to the organization and try to build around those two. But I think at some point it becomes clear that it's tough to win a championship with one small guard as the best player on your offense, let alone two. I mean, you go back through NBA history Steph Curry is basically the only guy since like Bob Cousy, maybe, or Oscar Robertson, who is still six, five to be the, you know, to be the best player on the championship team as a point guard, I guess, Isaiah Thomas too, but that was a, those Pistons teams were more kind of defensive juggernauts and offensive, you know, like the 2011 bulls, for instance. Um, so, you know, two of those guys, it, it becomes that much tougher. The other thing is they're five and 14 this year against teams with top 10 net ratings with a negative 8.6 point differential. Now every team except for like five has a negative point differential against those teams. Cause you're playing better competition, but still that's the worst mark among teams currently in the top eight in either conference. So, you know, to, to kind of go to the, the point I was just making, yeah, you might win 33 game, you mean 40 games a year, whatever, however many games they're going to win this year, be above 500. You might do that. But in the playoffs, how far are you really getting? That stat I just cited would indicate not very far. 
Yeah, and that's where I think long term like change is the answer. I just don't know what change looks like, and I don't know what what it does. Like every team, every good team should want CJ McCollum. He's just like this weird in between of like he's definitely not worth like the packages we've seen stars go for, you know. But he's also better than like a Kyle Lowry. You know what I mean? Like he has more value than Kyle Lowry, but less than Paul George when he was traded to the Thunder. So like you have to find the in between there, and it's really hard because. I'm sure the Blazers will want the Paul George pack, whatever that is, like a Drew Holiday package, we'll call it. Uh, but he's not worth that much. Like, he's just not – he's – one, he's he's probably slightly worse than Drew Holiday, and two, like that was a team that was in desperate need like the Bucks were, so that got boosted up. So I don't know what what they sort of would want or, or where they can go, and I think that's a harrowing place to be for an NBA team. Uh, and it's always tough at the end of at the end of an era. You have to transition from from one era to the next. You either have to part ways with a superstar, what some may feel is too early, or you have to hang on and keep trying and trying and eventually just go into the dumps for like four years. And and they're in the spot where they have to make that decision. Usually I'm all in on the, you know what I mean, turn the page, do whatever, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But like Dame has meant so much to that. It's like it, it is beyond basketball there. Uh, and he it is it is worthwhile, I think, to keep him and keep trying as long as you can until he can't anymore. And it's also one of those things where if they don't trade CJ McCollum, we won't have a counterfactual to compare it to, you know, if they would have, like, if they keep him, we don't know what it would have looked like if they had traded him. And if they trade him, we don't know what would have happened if they'd kept him. So it's always tempting to say, you know, now to say, oh, well, they should have traded him and they would have been better off. But we don't know that for sure. It, you could prognosticate and say how likely it is and whatnot, but there's no way of knowing what would have happened if you'd made the decision that you didn't make because it didn't happen. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> Heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Let's move to a team that has been moving in the opposite direction of the Blazers this month. And that is the Atlanta Hawks, who are 11-4 and four with a plus four net rating in the month of April. They're two and one in their last three games, all of which have come without Trey Young, and he'll be out for a little while um, with a high ankle sprain that he suffered against the Knicks. So the Hawks are in an interesting position here. As you noted before we came on, they've got a tough couple of games coming up against the Sixers. After that, though, they actually have a pretty soft schedule against a lot of these teams, you know, the Rockets, the Timberwolves, who are trying to lose. So if they come out one and one or even 0 oh and two against the Sixers, I don't think that's a huge problem for them. I still think they're in pretty good position to get either the four or the five, which I think is where you want to be in the East right now. But I, to me, the story of their season, one of them at least, is that they have been able to play without Trey Young, which comes in marked contrast to the last 
last year and the first half of this year before they fired Lloyd, Lloyd Pierce and switched to Nate McMillan, Bogdan Bogdanovich has been a big part of that. Clint Capella has been a big part of that. And they've been able to not only go two and one without Trey, but also tread water without him off the floor, play through other guys when he is on the floor and find a more democratic balance to their offense, which I think, you know, we can talk about whether Trey has been the same player this year that he was last year, but I think on the whole, the Hawks are a significantly better team. And if Trey does kind of get it into gear and find the all-star version of himself, I, I, I don't know what, what is that team? Like if you get last year's Trey young with this year's surrounding talent, what is that? I don't think those two things can coexist. Ooh, I don't think, I don't think last year's Trey young can exist with this, this year's team playing at the level it currently is. Uh, I mean, he is a, he's a great player you know, a great offensive player who might be one of the worst defensive players in the NBA still, who is one of the worst. Is, defensive yeah. Players in the NBA. Yeah. Uh, who is taking fewer threes than he did last year on a, a, you know, on an average volume. Like it's not like Trey young has ever been an elite shooter. He's never shot above 36% in like in his three years. He just hasn't. So like those 35 footers, there's 30 footers that he likes to pull up from. They're pretty useless. Uh, and he does it a lot. I disagree not- with that. Because you have to guard him. You don't though. He's shooting. He's shooting so poorly on them. Like he's not making them. But teams uh, still guard him. And and last but year. But but I think that's them. I think that's a mistake. And I I think when they get to the playoffs, they won't be guarding him as much. Uh, that, Maybe I, not. But it, it that shot is more about the value of the spacing and the hundred percent for guys like Damian Lillard and Steph Curry. It absolutely is. But when you don't have to guard that shot, because that guy's making 30% of them, I don't think you have to worry about, it. you know what I mean? Like it's the well, same he, idea of, of leaving. It's the idea of leaving any 30% shooter from beyond the arc wide right. open and just closing out on them. If you need to, uh, without, well, but he made pressure. 30, like 34, 35% last year. So the question is just which one is the real number, you know, it, it, right now it's this one. You well, know, it is, the, but, it's but I'm, I'm asking – he's been worse this year. I agree with that. But I'm, I'm wondering more just like – because I don't think playing with better players is prohibitive as far as making deep shots or making you know no, passes I, to shooters. Like I think the, he the, may – go ahead and say what you're going to say. Well, I was going to say the difference last year, it was sort of like, oh, imagine if he didn't have DeAndre Bembry shooting corner threes and he had Bogdan Bogdanovich, for instance – or, and then now it's, okay, imagine if he made 36% of his 28 footers instead of 30 or whatever it is. You know, it's, so there are parts, I agree that certain elements of his 2020 season are not repeatable with better talent. Like they don't scale to better teams, but I think other parts, just fundamental stuff like making shots, you know, creating separation, shooters making the shots that he sets up, those are repeatable. They just haven't happened at the same time this year. Well, that's... I think in part because he's not that great of a shooter from deep. Like he's a good shooter and like, or an average right this year, he is legitimately an average shooter. Like there's no, you know, he's percentage by percentage. Yes. Yes. But like those, those deep shots aren't going in enough either. You know, they're sure they're going in at whatever. I think it's like 31% or something like that. Yeah. He's definitely Um, been worse. I'm not going to argue that he's been worse this year. And, and I think part of that is, Trey Young is not as good on a good team. Like, you know, his talent just doesn't scale to being on a good team. And this was what we talked about last year. Like we talked about all the time, like he's doing this now, but, but, you know, when you put more talent around him, does hunting those assists make you as good? Does he really add value? And then we're about to find out when you make the playoffs, can you 
have him on the court on defensive possessions? And the answer is going to be a clear no. He is going to be hunted. Like, he is the target for teams to go after. And for as good as Clint Capella is, like, he's not an elite rim protector uh, in the sense that, like, he can back Trey up and they'll be fine. Like, they're going to get messed up defensively plenty of times. If they get, like, if they get Boston, and let's say Boston somehow starts playing well, which they haven't yet, so there's no reason to believe they will. But, like, I don't think they can beat Boston in a first-round series. I don't think they can beat Miami in a first-round series. They just don't have the the answer to when these teams start switching on to Trey Young unless it's benching Trey Young. And like you said, they have been good without him. But there's just no way that happens. You know, he's going to play 38 to 40 minutes a game in the playoffs. I think they can beat those teams you talked about. I wouldn't pick them to, but I think it's they're they're closer to those teams than it sounds like you think they are. The weirder thing to me is that he's only taking six and a half threes a game this year compared to nine and a half last year. And part of that is playing with better players. I get that. But he's just not hunting those shots as aggressively. His three-point attempt rate is down almost 10 percentage points. And he's, he's I think, fallen a little bit too much in love with his floater. Um, he's, you know, maybe part of it is he's, he's trying to expand his game and, and do new things. But just the aversion to three-pointers this season compared to past years specifically last year is kind of strange. And that's, that's the thing that I think maybe that is a product of playing with better guys and wondering like, okay, how much can I afford to take, you know, these, what would otherwise be bad shots, but are good shots because you're playing on a terrible team, you know, and, and trying to balance like, okay, do I need to get Bogdanovich involved now? Do I need to get hurt or a shot? And just wondering like where the balance is of him being aggressive versus trying to incorporate these new guys I don't know. I, it's, it's an interesting thing, but he definitely hasn't looked like the same guy to me this year. I will note, however, that the Hawks still have a 119 offensive rating with him on the floor this year. That is very good. That is a, a high-end playoff caliber offense when he goes off the floor. Again, they are, are pretty bad offensively, although they've been better with Lou Williams arriving on the team, Bogdanovich playing better. It, it's getting better, but it's still not great. So in that sense, like he still is doing valuable things for the offense. I do still think he has gravity as a pull-up shooter, even if he's not making as many, he's still an elite passer, top five passer in the league, really good at creating shots at the rim and from three for teammates, which is, you know, one of the most valuable things you can do. There are a lot of redeeming qualities to his game. I agree that he doesn't necessarily scale with other players around him because he likes to have the ball in his hands. He likes to be that heliocentric type of guy. And I think there are diminishing returns on those high usage players. To me, the Hawks are almost on the level of Boston and Miami as a playoff team, partially because they could just get the five seed and, and get to play the Knicks in the first round. You know, I yeah, mean, see, they might I think, not, I think the Knicks are a different, like if they, if they play the Knicks, they are better than the Knicks. I, I'm comfortable saying that. But the problem is when you talk about them with the Celtics, like what is their answer when the Celtics just run pick and roll until Jalen Brown, Jason turn Jason Tatum and Kemba Walker get to take turns attacking Trey young every possession. Well, but are they going to play the Celtics in the playoffs though? I think it's reasonable that they could maybe. Like, yeah. I guess the Celtics are in sixth right now. Yeah. The, the, no, I mean, the, they don't the have whole, a great answer for that. They're, they're, well, it's not, it's not just that they don't have a great answer though. It's that like they're losing that battle most of the time. It's that becomes like, you know, if they're scoring 1.4 points per possession on that, you know what I mean? There's something ridiculous where it's like, all right, well now we have to figure out what we're going to do here. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think that's a little overstated. Like, it, he's bad. We've seen, he's I, really I, I agree, bad. But we've seen bad defenders get covered up in the playoffs before. 
And I realize his limitations are more severe than a lot of those guys, but like Kemba Walker last year survived. I mean, you can play guys like that in the postseason. He survived because he had Tatum and Brown and they had the, the, the guys around him, the wings around him to sort of, to dig down from, uh, from the perimeter when, when those guys would get beat off the dribble, the, I mean, who's doing that from the Hawks? Like, is Tony Snell yeah. that guy? Well, th- that that brings up the other thing with them is they need DeAndre Hunter to come back if he's healthy, not to force himself back. But they need him to be right in order to have any chance, I think, in the playoffs. And this is the other thing with the Hawks, same as last season. We just haven't seen their team together. Like, they haven't yeah. had a full rotation healthy once this entire season, not a single game. Because Chris Dunn only came back two two games ago or whatever it was. And DeAndre Hunter and Cam Reddish have been out for months, you know? So we really don't know what this team looks like at full strength, which is both a theme for the Hawks and a theme for Nate McMillan teams going into the playoffs. So that's the other thing. I'm, I'm almost more optimistic because I feel like they've been able to outperform expectations, even as they've been hobbled, even as they've gone through tons of injuries, you know, there's that, that, website that tracks games missed due to COVID due to injury, all that the Hawks are like one of the top five teams in games missed due to injury this season. They've avoided COVID pretty well, but they've been hit pretty hard by injuries. And so, I mean, it would stand to reason that they'd be better as they get better players back, not a certainty of course, but you would think, you know, they get Deandre Hunter back. They're going to be better on defense, you know, but the question is, is DeAndre Hunter going to come back? And at what point is it like, this is just the team. This is who they have. This is what they are. Yeah. And I think we might be at that point. Like, I don't, yeah, maybe so. I don't know if there's a reason to believe that he's going to come back. Uh, You're right. He would help. But even at the end of the day, you can go to the opposite side of the court. You know what I mean? Like there's, uh, if you only have one guy that can help from the wing, you you don't have any Uh, when it really matters when teams can just scheme it up and draw it up to the opposite side of the court where DeAndre Hunter is, uh, I am interested to see them in the playoffs. Uh, I kind of want to see them play the Knicks because I do think that they can win that series and then see how they would fare against one of these top three teams. I think it would probably get pretty ugly pretty quickly. Like I, I just don't I think they, they have a chance against any of those three teams, which then brings in like, okay, then what's the next step? Like, or is this just the peak? Like is the peak well, then for this the next team step the four is, or five seed? The next step is Trey Young enters his fourth season and DeAndre Hunter enters his third season. You know, this is a young team. Even Capella is, is like, like 27, 28. The, the problem with Trey Young's game is like, where is he improving drastically enough to change how impactful he is in the playoffs? You know, he'd have to improve as right. a shooter, I, I think is the obvious thing. But I don't know that there's a reason to believe he will. I think it's, you know, he, he probably is what he is as a shooter, which is a good but not great one uh, who can pull up from deep, but maybe you don't want him always doing that or doing it as often as he does. Uh, especially in the postseason, DeAndre Hunter absolutely has room for growth, uh, especially as a, you know, uh, working off the dribble. But like, I just don't know that if your superstar who, like you said, wants to be a heliocentric superstar, doesn't have a direct avenue to improvement come postseason time uh, for foreseeably the rest of his career. Like w- what's the next step? Because the next step has to be either DeAndre Hunter rivaling him as like on his level as a player, or they've got to make an addition and this is what I talked about in the, the off season, like why they should have just like been okay, maybe sucking one more time. Like just try to, you know, try to get one of those top four guys one last time and then go for it. Because if they, if they added one of these top four guys in this class, the conversation, the conversation changes completely. Uh, but now they're probably a treadmill team. 
uh, unless they can do something drastic. That being said, they have pieces. They can do things, uh, you know, having, obviously having Kevin Herter helps, uh, you know, as a, as a piece moving forward, Cam Reddish helps if he can stay healthy or, or get healthy. Uh, you know, those guys can be attractive to other teams, but at some point they might just turn into the Blazers, which is ironic given that we're discussing them today. But I think that might be the future that kind of uh, not becomes inevitable, but that might be like what, what this is kind of looking like right now that they'll do, you know, maybe they make a conference finals run one year uh, on, on Trey Young's back. Um, you know, maybe they can, they can do something along those lines, but, at the end of the day, it's tough to build around a guy like that. And it's even tougher when he is not the pass or he is not the teammate that Damian Lillard is, you know what I mean? Like no, he, he is, is not, not right. So like when you have that guy and is not necessarily beloved, like Dame, who is definitely beloved in that locker room, like, I don't know. It, I think those red yeah. flags start to go up a little sooner. And he's also not as good as Dame. That's the other thing. Yeah. That's the other, like, well, right. And like, that is, like if Dame's ceiling with a really good team around him, that might not be a perfect fit. What, what Trey Young's team is right now. Uh, if the ceiling for that is the conference finals, then what's the Hawks ceiling, you know, like, well, it- here's what I would say. I mean, I agree. I think conference finals is probably their realistic ceiling. I had someone I, I know and trust the other day, put it this way that they were basically the Joe Johnson Hawks with a more famous player or they're going to be at least. Yeah. Um, I will say that I think, Bogdan Bogdanovich, DeAndre Hunter, Clint Capella, John Collins, if you keep that together, is probably better than any four teammates Damian Lillard has had around him at any given time. So while your high-end star is not as good, the supporting cast for the Hawks probably projects as being better than what the Blazers have had. But the thing, to, to go back to what you're saying about Trey and him making the improvements, I think that's where Bogdanovich is really important, where Hunter could become really important because you compare Trey to guys like LeBron, Luca, Giannis, these other really high usage guys, they're all much bigger than he is, and they can create space much more easily to just get a shot off than he can. And I think the one question with Trey, or at least the biggest one in the postseason, in addition to his defense, is going to be, can he create space to get a shot off against good defense in an isolation, in a pick and roll, whatever? Can he pull up from the mid-range? Can he do that on a consistent basis? And if not, Who's doing it? I think the answer this year is probably Bogdanovich. Is that good enough? We'll see. Is DeAndre Hunter doing that two years from now going to be good enough? We'll see. Can Cam Reddish ever become that kind of guy? We'll see. You know, so there's all these question marks, but that's the one part of his offensive game that I don't know if Trey's ever going to fully round out. And so if he doesn't, you need that bigger wing who can create shots and create separation consistently. The problem with Bogdanovich is that he's going to be 29 next year. Uh, yeah, he you know, is, but he that's is, not that. Old. It's not. I mean, it's not like like when you when you talk about moving, but when you talk about moving into Trey Young's prime and like, again, if if the plan is to build around Trey Young, you're going to have a hard time finding replacements for these guys as Trey Young gets older because he's going to take up a max contract slot, uh, right. and you're not going to be able to replace Bogdan Bogdanovich with with a like player when Bogdan's 32. You know, in, in four years or whatever it is like if we're projecting this out by the time Trey Young hits his prime they're going to need and most teams do this anyways where they have completely different iterations it's just hard to see them building it properly when he is not a, he's clearly not a guy that the players want to play with like I think that is becoming abundantly clear uh, and it's still the case last year as it was uh, or it's still the case this year as it was last year and that gets more prohibitive when you just don't like you can't just overpay guys like they did 
in free agency to get them. So they're they're in a rock and a hard place. And I think this might end up just being the the story of Trey Young's career. You know, like this is a really good heliocentric player who maybe, you know, maxes out as the best player on a four seed. Don't tell people at your local Chipotle that. Otherwise you <laughs> might get some blowback. Um, yeah, I agree with most of that. I mean, we're mostly on the same page. One other stray thought I had when you talked about sucking one more year and writing it out. I think in theory, that makes a lot of sense. In practice, they, they never could have done it because the wrestler wanted to make the playoffs. I, and, I, and, like and Trey Young, yeah. Young wanted to make the playoffs. You have a 21-year-old star player that is agitating to make the playoffs, who, by the way, is represented by Rich Paul, who has a history of, we'll Forcing say, causing situations. turmoil in order for his clients to get what they want in the past, which isn't like a slight at Rich Paul. He's doing his job, but like that's he, he's a proactive agent. That's another force at work here where I mean, you can't suck for one more year when you have a guy who's who's the best player in your team, the only thing your team has going, who wants to make the playoffs. You have to make a playoff push. 100%. Maybe that means that guy isn't the answer. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice, and a good polar vortex. (laughs) Heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. One other thing, just while we're on the Hawks, Clint Capella has been freaking awesome this year. Yes. He has been so good. He's been their best player. So consistent. His defense, this is the thing I said before the season. My theory going into the year was, okay, you're going to go from worst center rotation in the NBA to slightly above average center defense, right? You're going to make a 28th to 19th jump in defense. And Capella has been so much better than I even expected him to be. He's been a top five defensive center in the league this season. So the enormity of that jump grows even more because of how good he's been this year. They've been awesome defensively with him on the court, even with Trey also on the floor. And whether that will hold up in the playoffs when it becomes more about matchups and targeting certain guys, we'll see. 
But I just wanted to highlight how good he's been this season. His numbers are down, his efficiency, his scoring is lower. But to me, this is arguably the best season of his career, and he has been such an important player for this team. I think it's without a doubt the best season of his career, and I don't think there's a way to see this coming, honestly, uh, How just how good he's been. Uh, but to his credit, he's gotten that much better this year. Like I said, I think he's been their best player, at least their most valuable, considering the value he adds defensively and offensively. Uh, yes, I understand Trey Young is the engine that makes the offense go, but Capella is that on defense, and he is infinitely more value offensively than Trey Young is defensively. Um, and I, I think that means a lot. And, and honestly, he's part of the reason that 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 Trey Young has found success because he's been an excellent rim runner, uh, and he's sort of opened the floor. And he's opened the floor for you know when Bogdan runs a pick and roll, he has that pick and roll partner. Uh, it's not Damian Jones out there. Uh, Damian Jones actually was a pretty good pick and roll finisher. That was the one thing he could do. I mean, if he could catch it, uh, he, he could though. That's the thing that he was, he couldn't catch entry passes. He couldn't catch defensive rebounds, but he could catch lobs. But no, I, I think, uh, I think the Hawks are in one of the most interesting positions in the league. Uh, I do want to ask though, right now forced to make the decision. Do you want Trey Young or Shea Gills, just Alexander? Mm. right now i would take trey move you but i mean you have them moving forward like they are right, the future right. moving forward so there's the possibility that shea becomes a good defender and there's probably not any possibility that happens with trey but well, i here's also the think shea is also like way better right now even though he's like an average defender See, I wouldn't even say he's average. I, I think he's been pretty, yeah. we've pretty disag- bad. We've disagreed with this since he started playing in the NBA. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've come around on offense. I'm, I'm a full believer in him offensively, but defensively, I'm still not there. I don't know yet if he can be the guy who just gives you a great offense when he's on the floor. I'm not saying he can't be, but we know that Trey can be. Like, to me, Trey has top five, six offensive engine in the league upside. And Shea might be a really good offensive player on a good team, but I don't know if he's going to be at that elite level. So the question basically is, would you rather have a guy who guarantees you an elite offense or a guy who can be a piece of a good offense and give you quality defense? I don't know. I, I think probably Shea, just because you can put other guys around him. I think that's the other piece of this, like the, the likability of the, you know what I mean? Like the, the ease in building around him, uh, getting other guys there, I think it's th- that makes the answer Shea. I do think on the court it's close. I think everything else makes it Shea. Yeah, I just – I mean, because if Trey is – if you're taking the ball out of his hands, then his defense becomes more costly because he's not justifying it with that great offense, whereas right. Shea, you know, you can take it out of his hands. He'll still space the floor. He'll still shoot. And if he's not good enough to be your number one offensive guy – you can find you could you could draft Cade Cunningham potentially you know I mean you can right. make that work whereas that's a little trickier with Trey and that was part of my criticism of that that draft pick and the trade at the time not to relitigate that but just the the team building theory is a lot more difficult with a guy like Trey Young than someone like Luka Doncic which goes back to what I was saying earlier about the size and just the difference that makes it's it's hard to win with those guys in the NBA unless you have Steph Curry unless you have Damian Lillard who I still believe could have been the best player on a championship team, but just didn't have the guys around him. But there are not many of those guys. You know, Trey Young's a good player, but I, I just wonder if there's a, a ceiling on how good you can be because of his athletic and physical limitations. 
I, I will say the other part that makes that that trade tough is, and it makes it tougher to build around Trey Young, is that one is a fringe All Star and the other is an MVP candidate. Yep. <laughs> I think that is the the other part. I mean, of that's that the obvious that we need one. To consider. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although, hey, Cam Reddish. I like Cam Reddish. I, I, listen, I still like him. I'm Hawks not fans give will tell on. you that he and Trey Young together are more valuable. They'd be wrong. Not all Hawks fans. Let me let me put that out. Hashtag yeah. not all Hawks fans. <laughs> But some some of them, a certain part of Hawks Twitter. Before you alienate seventy percent of our listenership, listen. Certain people on Twitter would tell you Trey Young by himself is better than Luka Doncic right now, and and certain people would tell you that he's had more impact than Hank Aaron has on the sports world in Atlanta. <laughs> oh man, where were we? Here, here, yeah, <laughs> wherever here is. Um, just to close on the Hawks, the theory of their team especially with Capella and Bogdanovich playing this way, the theory of their team with a healthy DeAndre Hunter and let's say 85% of what 2020 Trey Young was, the theory of that team is still really interesting. And I, I do think they're good. If they get the four or five seed, like they are probably as good a bet as anyone in the East to win that, that series. Obviously they're drawing dead against any of the top three. I will say a Hawks Nets second round series It'll would be, be pretty interesting. It would probably be like a four or five game series. It's but, definitely a sweep, but it would be fun. But it would be interesting. I mean, those are two really good offenses. The Hawks have played the Nets well this season, which I mean, you know, take that for what it's worth. But I don't know. That that would be fun to watch and I think informative of just like how that team works, especially well, if Hunter's that, healthy, because D- Hunter has actually guarded James Harden pretty well in the past. Cam Reddish has well, then, in, in limited opportunity has done a decent job against Kevin Durant. Like that's and then an who's interesting... guarding Kyrie Irving. Well, I mean, listen, you run out of options against the Nets. This is the thing with the Nets. Like, but I mean, there are teams that can present better options than Trey Young on Kyrie Irving. Well, okay, of course. <laughs> by, <laughs> by teams, do you mean every team in the NBA? Yes. Yeah, uh, but no, I, I, th- I think the interesting part of a lot of this too is like if you match them up against those top three teams, right? Like who's Trey Young guarding? For the Nets, it's I mean, it's not Joe Harris because he's not chasing him. It's not Jeff Green because he's not. It's probably Joe straight. Harris, actually. Well, then Joe Harris is getting every open three. And then if they play the Bucks, like, I mean, is he guarding, like, I guess, it's, I guess it's P.J. Tucker, maybe. DiVincenzo, right? I don't know. I think DiVincenzo cooks him. And well, the interesting the, thing with the Bucks the Sixers, is it's, they like to put DiVincenzo in the dunker spot. Yeah. And so then Trey Young becomes your rim protector. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that becomes a problem. Uh but I think, like, if it's the Sixers, I mean, assuming George Hill becomes a bigger part of the rotation and pushes Seth Curry to the bench, like, he's probably got to guard George Hill. And George Danny Hill is, Green, maybe. Is, I don't think he's chasing Danny Green around. Like, you know what but I Danny mean? Danny like, Green actually doesn't run and, off and, that and many when, screens. Really, you just got to make sure not he, as, doesn't, he doesn't cut behind you. That's the thing. But, well. <laughs> it's going to be tough. Well, and I think this is further yeah. – this is worthwhile to extend the discussion. The Celtics, it's obvious. It's Kemba Walker. The Heat, it – I guess just hope Tyler Hero misses those shots when he takes them over him. With the Knicks, like it, it gets a little tricky there too. Like, I they, mean, you just they, put him on Alfred Payton and say, like, yeah, but Alfred double Julius Randle. Like Derrick Rose is getting those minutes in the playoffs. Uh, and and the problem is like they have a team that if they can get Julius Randle switched onto him, like it's like, well, it was fun while it lasted. These are going to be a fun four playoff games. Julius Randle might be the only player in the NBA. Like Giannis has weight room strength. Drew Holiday has grown man strength. 
Julius Randle just has dad strength. And I guess yeah. I, he is a dad, so that makes sense. But and he is a look great at him shooter this like, year. It's like this is a guy who just, you know, punches in his card, works his shift, and then goes home and like works his works his like 40 minute shift, like legitimately 40 to 45 every night. In the playoffs, do you think they'll bench him at all? Like, do you think oh he'll think play he just, 42 minutes a game? No, no. I mean, like, do you think he's playing 42 now? <laughs> like, he's like 38, but still. He's well, that's per game. I'm saying sometimes he plays 42. So, like, do you think there will be games where we're like, yeah, we got 47 minutes of Julius Randle in a first round playoff series? Just in like, oh, for sure. Three? There will be a, a playoff game where he plays 47 minutes. I wonder what minute they're going to choose. <laughs> like, when, <laughs> when they're going to decide this is it, get him out, hurry up, get him out. Probably like last minute of the first half. And even like, but, but just to go back to what I was saying, like, RJ Barrett could also just like, destroy Trey Young and like you you make that guy efficient if he can just blow by him and finish at the rim yeah he's he's not good on defense I think uh I think we agree on that <laughs> I think we got the point across there with that five minute discussion you said you wanted to talk about the Nets so let's move to them because I just, their three best players have played like two possessions together this year I like that that's sort of all I wanted to say like there's uh, not a ton. I want to say this. I know, like, I think I see how this ends. We're all going to talk about how they don't play together and how, like, how, how are they going to figure it out? And they're going to win the title. Like in there, because they have, and we've all overlooked this. They have two of the five best players in the NBA on their roster, like in their prime. Like this I is would, not, I would disagree with that. Actually, do they have any of the five best players in the NBA? Oh, I knew that was the next sentence coming. And boy, are you wrong? <laughs> I'm just asking. I'm not saying they don't. Yes, they have. I wouldn't put it at more than one for sure. I'm saying when we put it at the when we do the top 10, like when we do our top 10 at the end of the year, two of them will be in the top five. Mm. Yeah, I might have zero anyway, but this isn't this isn't the top 10 episode. We'll we'll discuss it later. But point taken, they have I mean, you could even extend it and say they have three of the eight best isolation scorers in the NBA. Right. And like there's just not going to be an answer for them. Uh, The. I mean, the Sixers might have the best chance against the Nets in the East. And, like, even then, like, I don't think they have that great of a chance if the Nets are hitting on all cylinders. And, like, who are you looking at in the West that's like, oh, yeah, they can handle them? Like, it just feels like the Nets are going to kind of coast to the postseason or to the finals. And once they get there, they'll be most fresh because these guys haven't played a ton of minutes this year. And as long as they're actually healthy, they could just steamroll the Western Conference team to a championship. Yeah, I'm not quite as high on them just because their defense is – not going to be horrible it's horrible Um, which is always a problem and i think milwaukee can match up with them decently i think philly even can pose certain challenges i mean i don't think that those are cakewalks the benefit they do have is that although i guess if philly jumps them and gets the one seed it's different but if the nets hang on to the one seed they only have to play one of philly or milwaukee i don't think they're hanging on to that like so okay so then it becomes even more difficult because they have to play probably both of those teams and now you know that's just it it decreases the odds that they'd win enough series to get to the finals i heard it posited recently i can't remember by who that not having their stars together could actually be a long-term benefit right only in the sense that now joe harris is you know is really good and really confident bruce brown knows how he fits in you have all these landry shamit guys who are playing real minutes getting comfortable in the system feeling like they are contributors and actually becoming contributors and so now when you plug those three guys back in, you have more options and, and presumably more capable options to put around them. Whereas if you just had to lean on your superstars all season, maybe Landry Shamit doesn't have any games where he breaks out and now he's not 
helping you in the postseason. So I don't know. I, I tend to think that they're going to have to catch up a little bit with these guys and get them up to speed, but they're also so great that like, how many games does it really take for Kevin Durant to be like, Oh yeah. Right. Like this, that's, you know, you know what I mean? Like these guys and, and the way James Harden was playing was not as we saw in Houston. Uh, and as long as he keeps playing like that, they're going to be fine. And Kyrie was playing really well off the ball. I just like don't think any teams are going to have an answer for them. And I reserve the right to change this opinion within the next three weeks and probably the next three hours. I think defensively, the time off could hurt them just because they're not working together and going through the rotations and the schemes and stuff. That I don't think it's going to matter. Gonna like, to. They just can't. No one can keep up. Like there's no you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Kevin Durant can get any shot he wants at any time when he's on the basketball court. James Harden is one of the best passes in the NBA and one of the best isolation scores in NBA history. And Kyrie Irving, when he's hot, is nearly unstoppable. Like we've seen him put up like 40, 50 effortless, effortlessly, excuse me, when he's like at his absolute best. So like if they're all playing well, it's it's kind of hopeless for for some teams. That may be. I definitely have held that viewpoint at certain points in the season and had to kind of talk myself off the ledge, maybe just for the sake of enjoying wanting to the enjoy the postseason, not, not feeling like it's inevitable. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm, I mean, you know me, I'm generally hesitant to deem anything inevitable just because I think, you know, anything can happen. Like yeah, the Nuggets absolutely. made the conference finals last year, you know, we didn't see that coming and, and things also seem inevitable in hindsight when they really weren't. Yeah. In, uh, what's the term for that? It's, um, it's something determinism. I don't know. Anyway, I'm not a cognitive scientist. The point is that the Nets are no, really that's good, true. and their offense is also really good. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can leave us a rating and review on the podcast player of your choosing, if you so desire. You can also email us at readandreactpodcast at gmail.com. Send us any thoughts, questions, concerns, uh, commentary on the show. We're happy to hear it. Spread the word word of mouth or email or whatever, send it to a friend that you think would enjoy it. That's a great way to, uh, to get the show out there. So other than that, everyone stay safe, wear a mask, wash your hands, get vaccinated. And John, I'll talk to you later. Talk to you soon. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice, and a good polar vortex. <laughs> Heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. 
A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com.